0: Let's open our Bibles to that 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, where we can take up our Lord's Prayer that He prayed between the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane as He made His way there with His Apostles. This is the prayer of the founder of our religion. This is the prayer of the High King of Heaven, the priest that intercedes for us every day. He ever lives to make intercession for us. I will not spend any time in the way of introduction because we did that last Lord's Day. But when you look at John 17, if you have a red letter edition Bible, it's in the red writing because this is the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ to His Father just before He is crucified. He spoke chapters 14, 15, and 16 to his apostles as he walked from where they observed the Passover to the Garden of Gethsemane, but he prayed, chapter 17, to his Father. We dealt with the first five verses last Sunday, in which he addressed his Father about what he was to do, and that he admitted that God had given him power or authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to his elect. Spoken of here, as those that thou hast given me. He should give eternal life to as many as. A simple way of remembering what those adverbs mean is not one more and not one less. As many as God had given him, the Lord Jesus Christ was going to give eternal life to them. He wasn't going to give eternal life to one more. David said, although he make my house not to grow... And he wasn't going to give it to one less because Jesus said, I will not lose one of them in John chapter six. But we're coming to verse six and we're going to cover from verse six down through verse 19 in the next few minutes before we have our break. What should we be thinking while we read and consider these verses? This is how our Lord prayed. This shows us his compassion For those the Father had given him, first of all his apostles, and then those that would believe on those apostles as we have. Believe on Christ by the work of those apostles. Let me clarify. We can see in these words the Lord's ambition. As you read through these verses, how many of them deal with your economic success? None. How many of them deal with your physical success? None. None. How many of them deal with you and the number of children you might have? None, none, and none. This is a very spiritual chapter in that our Lord's prayer requests are very spiritual. And it shows how He prays. And we ought to let that affect the mix of our prayers. How much of our prayers are carnally and earthly related as opposed to heavenly and spiritually related? It ought to judge us and teach us as we go through these verses. We're not apostles. You're not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. And there hasn't been an apostle alive on this earth for 1,900 years in spite of what the Mormon church may say or the World Redemption Outreach Center off of Haywood and airport roads in this city. There has not been an apostle on this earth for 1,900 years plus, because an apostle had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and none of them have seen him. The works of an apostle are so far beyond all the works of Benny Hinn and everyone else squared and cubed. If you go read the works of the apostles, they were mighty in signs and wonders, Amen. proving That fishermen were indeed telling the truth when they said that Jesus had been raised from the dead. We're not apostles, but we can be thankful for the apostles God did have. And they were special men. And they were chosen by God. And they were made great in the kingdom of heaven. They are chief foundation stones of the New Testament church. And we should be thankful for them. And it is the work of God. He chose impulsive, impetuous, sometimes foolish fishermen, tax collectors, to be His apostles. And He made them great. And part of their greatness came from this prayer. Because He prayed for them to be great in the sight of the Lord after His departure. While we're not apostles, we can still see a token of how Jesus prays for those that are His. Though these first 14 verses that we're going to look at today don't apply directly to us, they apply to men like us. And if Jesus prayed so fervently and passionately for them, surely he prays fervently and passionately for us. As we'll see in the second assembly when we take up verses 20 through 24, he does indeed pray in very similar language for us. The apostles were great men and do not ever despise them. They were great because God chose them and Jesus Christ taught them. And the Holy Spirit of God brought everything that Jesus Christ had taught them to their memories. And they were able to write down perfect words for us. They were able to preach perfect sermons. Even if they were grammatically incorrect. The truth of the sermons was perfect. Remember, we read about Peter in Acts chapter 4 that the elders of the Jews could listen to Peter and say, these men aren't even learned. These men haven't even graduated from high school. Ah, they must have been with Jesus. Because everything, everything they're saying was about the Lord Jesus Christ. They were great men. They are the great men of our religion. You know, if you want some being that the books can't decide for sure whether he's God or Satan, like the Mormons and their God, and have the elders and apostles that sit out in Salt Lake City as the leaders of your religion, or Joseph Smith or Brigham Young, you're welcome to them. We'll never even take up the names of those men with respect in our lips. They were pagans and fools and still are. And we do not say that to run anyone down, but to run down the false gods of false religion, just like Jesus did in Psalm 16, verse 3. Brian. Or 4, wherever it was there at the front end of that psalm. We have the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles. And upon that foundation, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, and them being foundation stones, the kingdom of Jesus Christ was built. And what men they were, their enemies said they have turned the world upside down. You are reading personal letters written by the Apostle Paul to churches and individuals when you read the New Testament. And they're still around today. And they're still a multi-million copy seller every year. Because these were the men that taught the truth of the Christian religion that Jesus had given them. And he prayed for them in these words. Verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Jesus here is praying three and a half years after he chose these men. After God had directed him to these men and told him, These are the men that I have chosen to be your personal companions and your ministerial helpers. Over the next three and a half years, and then when you're gone, they will be your witnesses of your death and resurrection. I have manifested thy name unto the men. Jesus is praying for eleven men that had company with him in his ministry. He's not praying for himself, and he's not praying for us directly. And he's not praying for Judas. Because at this point, those, these men that were with him were not, did not include Judas, because he had got up from the table at the Last Supper and left to, to go get the Jews and bring the angry mob into Gethsemane, which he does in chapter 18, the first few verses. The apostles were God's greatest gift to Jesus Christ and the church. In 1 Corinthians twelve twenty eight, it says, and he gave... I, I'm, I'm misquoting that just a little bit, let me get the right terminology... And God hath set some in the church first apostles, then prophets, secondarily, thirdly, teachers, and after that, miracles. Notice the the, uh, the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, teaches Paul what the order of the gifts were. Apostles were first, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, fourth, miracles. We might have a tendency to say that a miracle worker should be farther up that list. But we don't have the perspective that God has. A man who could reveal the Word of God to saints was far more valuable, far more spiritual, and carried so much more weight in the kingdom of heaven than a man who could heal a lame man. In Ephesians chapter 4, it said that Jesus Christ ascended up on high and gave gifts unto men. And He gave some... Apostles, and some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. These are the men. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Jesus had fully and clearly, which is what the word manifest means, taught the disciples about himself and about his Father in heaven. Look at John one you You'll always want to keep your finger there at John 17, but let's, listen to these words. In John chapter 1 and verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Jesus Christ made known the invisible God to men. And He especially made Him known to the apostles. How many times did He pull His apostles aside and explain to them things that were kept from the multitude at large. God had chosen these men. No man should ever take an office in the kingdom of heaven, nor in the churches of Christ, by any other choice than God's choice. And the New Testament tells us how we determine God's choice. But God chose the apostles for Jesus Christ. Thine they were. They were men that God had given Jesus for His service. And thou gavest them me. It is a divine call that enables men and qualifies men for the ministry. Hebrews 5 4 tells us that no man taketh this office unto himself, speaking of the priesthood. Ministers see other men that God has qualified and they put them into the ministry. And that's God's order for how things are to be done. When you read 1 Timothy 3 and its qualifications for a minister, That isn't written to a church any more than you would write children and suggest to them how they ought to pick a father. It's written to a minister. He is to measure men and find those that have the qualifications and ordain them and put them in the ministry. The other place the qualifications are listed is Titus chapter 1. Again, it's another pastoral epistle. God chose these men. And if you were to look at them from the outside, you would say... Peter? Peter? God chose Peter. And God enabled Peter. And Jesus taught Peter. And Peter became a great apostle, as you can read about in the book of Acts. And we have two epistles in his name to this day. Father, verse 6 tells us, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. And they have kept thy word. He commends them for having kept the word that he had taught them. Now we know when we read the Gospels, we can see some of their weaknesses, can't we? They would forget things that he had taught them. They did not want him to be crucified. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, when he prays for us, is he merciful? They have kept thy word. They had not departed like Judas. They had been faithful. They were remembering the one faith and one Father, and one baptism that they had been taught. And that was to their credit. Verse 7, Father, now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. The apostles, by the grace of God, knew that everything Jesus had and did was a gift from God, that He was sent from God, that He was God's Son, His power to perform miracles was by the power of God. You might say, well, that's easy to figure out. Was it? What did all the Jewish leadership think about the power to perform miracles that Jesus had? He did it by the power of Beelzebub. But Jesus taught those twelve. And I want to tell you, if it's not for Jesus Christ teaching you and revealing the Father to you, and if it's not for the Father revealing Jesus to you, you would say that Jesus did it by the power of the devil. It takes divine revelation for you to believe that Jesus of Nazareth operated by the power of God alone. I mentioned this last Sunday. I want you to see it. Look at Matthew 16. Matthew 16, where Jesus admits how Peter learned his identity. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has asked a question in verse 13. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, his disciples answered in verse 14, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremias, or one of the prophets. Look at all the ideas they had. And if you ask religious questions today by going onto to the internet and typing anything into a Google search box, do you come up with all sorts of ideas like this? Yeah. Indeed. But there's only one answer, and the one answer has to be given by God, or you'll never find it. Right. Jesus said in verse 15, He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. The Father of the Lord Jesus Christ showed Peter who Jesus of Nazareth was, or he would not have recognized him. First Corinthians chapter 2 tells us that the leaders of the Jews did not know they were dealing with the Lord of glory, for had they known it, they would not have crucified Him. But they were kept blinded, because Jesus blinded them according to Matthew 13, John 12, Acts 28. He hath blinded their eyes, He hath stopped up their ears, He hath hardened their heart, lest they should believe, repent, and be converted. Because they were a stubborn and rebellious generation. But Jesus in His prayer in John 17, 7 says, now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. And we could read various testimonies of the apostles saying that they did believe. Remember Thomas. He had told the other apostles, I won't believe until I see him myself. You ten guys telling me that you saw him and you saw the holes in his hands and in his feet isn't good enough for me. I've got to see it myself. So Jesus obliged him, and appeared to Thomas, my Lord and my God. You know, after he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ, they had their moments of unbelief, but overall they did believe, and they were ready to serve him, and he was about to send them into the world. Verse 8, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee And they have believed that thou didst send me. That is the message of the gospel. That God sent the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. And the apostles believed it. And Jesus is telling his Father in heaven, The apostles have believed the record I have given of myself that you sent me into the world. They believe all that. I have given them the words which thou gavest me. When you read your Bible... You are reading words written down by apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those words did not originate with the apostles. And those words did not originate with the Lord Jesus Christ. Those words originated with God, who gave them to Jesus Christ, who gave them to His apostles. How does the book of Revelation open up with its first verse? Does it sound like this? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Do you see the order there? God gave it to Jesus, who gave it to an angel, who came and signified it to John. And John wrote it down, and we have the book of Revelation today. This is one of the mysteries of our faith. We have the words of God given to Jesus, given to the apostles, Who wrote them down for us. We don't go to priests of Rome. We don't ask Mary for help. God gave the words to Jesus. Who gave them to the apostles. Who gave them to us. And Jesus here is commending these fishermen. And he says. They have received the words that I have given them. And have known surely. That I came out from thee. Holding your hand there at John 17. Look at John 6. John 6, I want you to see an emphasis on that word, surely. Did the apostles barely believe or surely believe? Surely. How are we supposed to believe? Barely or surely? Are you sure that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God? That He lived, died, was buried, and rose again according to the Scriptures and sits at God's right hand? Do you barely believe that or do you surely believe it? If you surely believe it, it will change your life. John chapter 6, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus chased them down and said, Please don't go away, because I don't want to lose any of you. Does it say that in John 6, 67? I'm not making a mockery of God's Word. I'm trying to get your attention to think about what it does say. It says in 66, from that time many of His disciples went back and walked no more with Him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe, and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Those twelve understood because God had given it to them, Jesus had taught them, and they had received it by divine enablement, and they were locked down on the truth that Jesus was the Son of God. We believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the one Christ, prophesied by the Old Testament, the Son of the living God. Okay, Jesus, Jesus heard that, saw that, and commended the apostles to his Father in heaven. Isn't it comforting to know that if you surely believe the things contained in God's Word, Jesus Christ will commend you to his Father as being indeed a true believer? I've given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them and believed them and are sure of them. According to verse 8. Let's go to verse 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. There is no reason at this point in verse 9 to leave the train of thought of the apostles, though many men have done so, and maybe we in our ignorance did so. But from verse 6 all the way to verse 19, he's dealing with the apostles. When you get to verses 11 and 12, he's going to say, I have kept those men that you gave me out of the world. None of them is lost, save Judas Iscariot. Now that's not the elect because Judas wasn't lost from the election. Judas was lost from being an apostle. And you've got to keep that. Does the Bible tell us to rightly divide the word of truth? Does Jesus say in John 6, I will lose none of them? And then in John 17, He'll say, I have lost one of them? Does He say both? Is He talking about the same thing or two different things? Two different things. And that's how we rightly divide the word of truth. Because He's not speaking of election here to eternal life. He's speaking here of God's choice of the apostles to their work. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for anyone else in the world. I've chosen them out of the world. You chose them out of the world. I have given them thy word. I am preparing them to be special witnesses of me and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 20, he's going to pray for all those that will believe on him through the record given by the apostles. So the chapter does tell us that he prays for only two categories of people. The apostles and those that believed what the apostles taught and wrote. He doesn't pray for unbelievers. Now, isn't it amazing that he didn't pray for unbelievers? If he didn't pray for unbelievers, why why does anyone want to say that he died for unbelievers? That there's a whole category, a whole mass of mankind that Jesus died for, but he wouldn't pray for. Why isn't there another chapter here saying, I pray for all those that have not and will not believe? Because I've laid down my life for them, Father, that they could be one with you and me, but they won't. There's nothing like that. He makes distinctions in his prayer. He's always made distinctions. When that whole crowd walked away from Jesus Christ in John 6, he didn't chase them down. He didn't say, did I say something to offend you? I'm sorry if I said something to offend you. He didn't say anything like that. In fact, he knew he had offended them. And the apostles knew he had offended them. They said to him, Lord, don't you know that's a hard saying? What had he been saying that was so hard? Two things. First, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. Was that a pretty hard saying? Did he mean it literally? No, he meant it figuratively. But did he keep repeating it in literal words? You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Otherwise, there's no life in you. And the apostles came to him in John 6 and said, Don't you know that that's offending? That's a hard saying. And he said, Haven't I already told you once? I'll tell you again. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. That was the second hard thing of John chapter 6. No one can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ except God draw him to it. If God doesn't prepare the heart and do the work of regeneration and open that heart like the heart of Lydia, no one would believe. We would all think his sayings were hard and we would all turn away and go away from the Son of God. He said, but have not I chosen you, and one of you is a devil. And that's what is meant, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, over in John 17, verse 9. You know, many times we have used John 17:9 as a proof of election. I pray for them, meaning the elect. I pray not for the world, meaning the non-elect. We don't want to use the Bible falsely. Right. The point is true. That God does not Jesus Christ does not pray for the non-elect, but you can't prove it from John seventeen nine because john seventeen nine is dealing with the apostles. I pray for them, I pray not for the world. He wasn't praying for all those Jewish leaders that hated him and were going to crucify him and would end up being the instigators of the death of the apostles as well. I'm praying for those which thou hast given me, for they are thine. the ones that he already said. In verse 6, that they were his, that they were God's, that thine they were, and thou hast given them me. That's what he's praying for in verse 9, is the apostles. And Jesus Christ is focusing his prayer on them by saying, Lord, Father in heaven, I'm not directing this toward anyone else but them, these special men that you have chosen and you have given me, that I've given your words to and they've received them, and believed surely that I came from thee. These are the ones I'm praying for. Hear my prayer, Father, as I pray for the apostles. Weak men going into the world to do a great work. They needed his prayer. And they got his prayer. When you are in need, you have a mediator and an intercessor that will pray for you. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He is able to help you in your time of need. Do we not have a throne of grace where we can go to obtain mercy and help in time of need? What is the basis of that mercy that we obtain there? It's Jesus Christ praying for us and interceding for us. There is no need you will ever face in your life that Jesus Christ cannot provide the strength for it and the grace for it. The apostles faced much more than all of us will ever face combined in the way of persecution and trouble. And yet they were able to endure and triumph over it. They died glorious deaths. Paul said, I'm ready to be offered. He wasn't afraid. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. That's what they were able to do. Beaten, stoned, whipped. By the Romans persecuted and in trouble, it didn't matter. Because Jesus Christ had prayed for them and sustained them by the strength he gave them. Verse 10, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. Father, these eleven men are yours. You handpicked them, and you've given them to me. All yours are mine, all mine are thine. These 11 apostles are mine, which makes them yours, because we have one purpose, one plan, one affection, one goal. This is the Lord Jesus Christ in total unity with His Father. All that are yours are mine. All that are mine are yours, and I am glorified through them. The unity of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, is going to be addressed several times here in John 17. And it is the unity that ought to characterize every one of us. First with God himself, and then with one another. If you read 1 John 1 last night, what was John's prayer? That you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy... May be full. And that joy and that fellowship flows from being totally united with God. Jesus Christ said, I always do those things that please my Father. The Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus never disappointed the Father. The Father never disappointed the Lord Jesus Christ. All that the Father had and considered His, Jesus considered His own. All that Jesus Christ considered to be His own, the Father considered His. They were totally united. And this point is so important because Jesus, being a prophet himself, knew what was coming. And do you know what was coming? Division. But I'll tell you, other than a couple temporary relapses, there wasn't division among these 11 men. These 11 men were the pillars of the New Testament church. And Jesus Christ's prayer for them right here is that they would be together. And that they would glorify Him. And they had been and were glorifying Him. I am glorified in them. Jesus Christ was glorified by eleven men. Some common fishermen. Who believed the truth. Preached the truth. Did miracles. And had changed lives. That glorified the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11. And now I am no more in the world. But these are in the world. And I come to Thee. Holy Father. Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. John 17:11. Now, there are verb tenses throughout John 17 that you need to watch carefully, and they shouldn't move you. It says in verse 11, And now I am no more in the world. Was Jesus still in the world at that moment? Yes, He was. How many more days would He be in the world? Forty-three. He's going to be in the ground three days and three nights. And then he's going to be seen for 40 days and 40 nights. But it was so close and it was so certain that he was leaving the world. He simply speaks to his father as if he had left. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world and I come to thee. That point is so simple. You can understand that. Jesus loved his 11. They were gods. God had given them to him and he was about to leave them and leave these 11 weak men to fare on their own. And they did not have the strength to fare on their own, so Jesus Christ is praying for them. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we are. And what is left off at the end of that verse is as we are one. The request here is for apostolic unity in the things of the kingdom as God and Christ are one in the things of His kingdom. Why does He call Him Holy Father? The holiness of God is the beauty of God. The book of Psalms tells us to worship Him in the beauty of holiness. And holiness is exalted by agreement and unity of those that call upon His name. We purify our hearts by love of the brethren. Purity is by getting rid of any differences with the other children of God that God has given us to love. And so he addresses them as Holy Father and says, keep them. Keep them through thy name. What is that name? There is one God and one Father of all. If we go back to the basics, we go back to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6, that tells us there is one God and one Father of all. If we go back to that starting point, how divided can you be? There is no division. That is the simplest foundation of all. Keep through thy name. What is that name? We have one God. He is Jehovah. He is the Father of all. He's through all. He's in you all. As we're able to read in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6. So Jesus is praying, Holy Father, keep these 11 apostles that I have, that you've given me, keep them united through thy name. Start with the one basic fact of the unity that there is in God and work out from that. Now, Paul worked out quite a ways, didn't he? In Ephesians chapter 4, he said there's one God, then he said there's one Lord, there's one baptism, there's one faith, there's one spirit. He works all the way out to the unity of the Christian religion that there ought to be. And these 11 men kept it because Jesus prayed for them to keep it. Our unity is through the name of God and His Son, Jesus. Blood is thicker than blood. That is where our unity is. That is our oneness. Our oneness isn't biological. Our biological connection to family members, so what? We have a little bit of DNA that is similar. Our connection with one another is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and through one God who is the Father of us all. You know, an earthly father gives birth... I mean... He doesn't give birth himself, but he causes his wife to give birth, if you're following me. And the children born to that one father can be quite different, can't they? We've all seen that many times over. But there's one father of us all. And when he gives birth to us, we are partakers of the divine nature, and we are all alike in the new man. We are all alike in the new man. And we're to be one, and we're to put that into practice, and Jesus is praying for that. The greatest threat... That was coming upon them was their division. On the way to the Last Supper, what were they arguing about? Who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Did he know that they were arguing behind his back about who would be the greatest? Did he address it in various places in the different Gospels? Yes. And he's addressing it right here by asking his Father to keep them from division. That they may be one as we are one. Father, help them to be one in faith one in doctrine, one in purpose, one in plan, one in affection, one in communion, one in spirit, one in body, one in unity, one in helping each other, as we are one. No wonder the Apostle Paul writes so much about unity and love of the brethren because he was taught personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ's emphasis of his last prayer, that we be not divided and that they be not divided, his eleven apostles verse 12 While I was with them in the world I kept them in thy name Those that thou gavest me I have kept and none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled Father while I was in heaven I mean while I was here on earth with them now he's speaking as if it's all over but he's he's still going to spend 6 weeks with them While I was with them I kept them all through thy name We had that unity That you, our Father in heaven, is the starting point of all unity. I kept them through thy name. And I haven't lost one of them. These apostles that thou hast given me, save Judas Iscariot. I did lose Judas Iscariot. He has gone. He has departed from thee. He no longer holds the apostolic faith. He is going to betray me for 30 pieces of silver in just a few hours or minutes. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Look at Psalm 41. I want you to see the scriptures. Psalm 41. Oh, what did Jesus say about Judas? It had been better for that man that he had never been born. born. Those are terrible words. Psalm 41, verse 9. Yea. Mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. That's fulfilled over in John chapter 13. Let's look at it. There's John chapter 13. Mine own familiar friend, which hath eaten my bread, hath lifted himself up against me. Come over to John chapter 13. And verse 18, Jesus said, I speak not of you all. At the Last Supper, near the Last Supper, I speak not of you all. John thirteen eighteen. I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. There is the fulfillment of Scripture. God chose twelve apostles for the Lord Jesus Christ. Among those twelve, one had been chosen as a devil. God wasn't surprised. Judas didn't shock the Lord by becoming a devil. A devil was chosen to be one of the twelve to fulfill Scripture. And to give an illustration that there can be false teachers who appear ever so righteous and ministers of righteousness that men cannot perceive them. When Jesus said, One of you shall betray me after three and a half years, did John know who it was? Did Peter know who it was? Did they think that anyone at the table could be it other than themselves? (laughs) They were thinking it must be one of us. It must be me. Lord, is it is it me? They did not recognize Judas. And you know, you come over to 2 Corinthians 11, and the Apostle Paul says that there are deceitful workers, there are false apostles that appear as angels of light and ministers of righteousness that are nothing but the workers of Satan to destroy churches. And and Judas gives us that illustration. But Judas gives us another illustration. He's called the son of perdition. Perdition means destruction or judgment. Judas Iscariot was the son of it. That means he was a child of it. He was born to it. It was his destiny and it was his nature. He was a destructive person and he would be destroyed. He was the son of perdition. Though he gave such lip service... To the cause of Christ. Is there another son of perdition in the world? I didn't say sons of perdition. I said a son of perdition. He sits on a seat in Rome. And he is called the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because he pretends like Judas to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. When in fact... He is a destroyer of everything that Jesus Christ stood for and taught. And that is the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. I speak of the Pope of Rome. Right. The Pope of Rome is called the man of sin and the son of perdition. Only two times in the Bible do we have the words son of perdition. Right here about Judas Iscariot and Second Thessalonians 2, about another betrayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the Pope of Rome. All the confessions of faith, until they began getting politically correct about 50 years ago, they all said when you came to the section on the church, that the head of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ, and can in no way be the Pope of Rome, who is rather that man of sin and son of perdition. Everybody knew what Second Thessalonians 2 meant 150 years ago. There is no commentary 150 years ago, that thought 2 Thessalonians 2 was some leader of the United Nations and some science fiction leader that's going to land in a spaceship like the ideas that men have about the so-called Antichrist. It was understood. The Caesars of Rome had to be taken out of the way in order to leave a vacuum of power in Rome into which vacuum the Bishop of Rome would rise to take over the the, the registered no, uh, nominal public church, and lead it against the true saints of God. Second Thessalonians 2. But we have it here in John seventeen twelve when Judas is called the son of perdition, and the Pope fits Judas so well, and Judas fits the Pope so well. They claim the name of Christ. They c- claim to be a Christian religion, but they stand against everything Jesus stood for. Jesus had lost none of His apostles. He had kept them in Thy name from the world, but one of them had been lost, and that had been planned, to be, He had been planned to be lost from the beginning to fulfill Scripture. Verse 13, Jesus continuing to speak to His Father, and now come I to Thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have My joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus was soon to be with His Father. But He's praying in the world for these that He was going to leave behind, that they might have joy. My joy fulfilled in themselves. What was His joy? We read it this morning. We read it in Psalm 16. At Thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. I have kept the Lord always before my face. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. For for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross despising the shame. Is that what drove Paul? Paul said to depart from the body to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and to depart is far better than to remain here. He had a joyful expectation of what was beyond death, so death did not frighten him. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm ready to be offered Because henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge of all, will give to all those that love his appearing. That is the joy Jesus was praying for his apostles. Verse 13, I'm coming to thee, Father, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The joy that Jesus Christ had in serving God and walking with God is possible for the apostles and for us. Isn't that what 1 John 1 said? I go back to it again. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. I want my joy fulfilled in them, Holy Father. Brethren, do you have and know the joy that the Lord speaks of here? The joy that Jesus Christ had. Is it fulfilled in your life? You say, no, it isn't. It can be. How can you have the joy of Jesus Christ fulfilled in your life? Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace through believing. That ye may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is able to give you the power to be filled with all joy and peace. On what basis? Through believing. It's faith. It's laying hold of the Word of God every day. Every day that we cheat ourselves and do not go to the Word of God and feed ourselves with this and lay hold of these words that God gave Jesus and He gave to His apostles. If we don't do it, we lose our joy, we lose our peace, we lose our hope. We can be filled with all joy and peace through believing. But if you don't go to the Word of God like you should, you lose what Jesus prayed for His apostles to have. Verse 14, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That's speaking of the sinful, wicked world that lies outside the saints of God that are in the earth, and the excellent in whom Jesus Christ delighted. The Word of God will make a difference in your life. If you take the Word of God and live by it, the world's going to hate you. If you get along with the world, it's because you are not living the Word of God. Second Timothy 3.12 warns us about the perilous times. All that live godly in Christ Jesus shall, shall suffer persecution. Not might, not could, shall right. suffer persecution. And we're told why right here in verse 14. It is because of the pure Word of God. If you love the pure Word of God, if you stand for it, if you defend it, if you teach it, if you let it change your life, the world will hate you. Because it condemns them. It convicts them. It shames them. And they are envious of the beautiful Word that we have. Verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil and what is not said there that is in the world. Father, I'm not praying for you to take them out early. I'm praying for you to protect them from the evil that's in the world because they need to outlive me by another 30 or 40 years, some of them, so that they can preach and witness my resurrection from the dead. I'm not praying for you to take them early. The world does hate them and the world's going to persecute them and Jesus certainly warned them about that in John 15. He warned them so thoroughly before He had this prayer that the world was going to hate them. He said, listen, if they've hated me, Don't you think they're going to hate you as well? If they've hated your Lord and Master, they're certainly going to hate His servants. But He prayed that the Father would keep them. And I'll tell you, when James laid down his life by having his head cut off in Acts chapter 12, it was the time God had chosen for James to come home. James had done his work. Others were there longer, but the Lord did keep them. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. They are separate and distinct from this world, Father. They don't believe this world any longer. They believe the words that Thou hast given Me. Protect them. Keep them from the world and its temptations. Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. O Father, make them holy. Consecrate them to Thy service. Through Thy precious Word. Thy Word is truth. What is it that purifies our lives and sanctifies us and can lead us to greater and greater holiness? Again, it's the Word of God. Sanctify them through thy truth. Make them dedicated and holy thine, O Father, through this Word. This is the standard that should unite our hearts and our minds. We're Bible Christians. We're Bible Christians. We want our Christianity defined by the Word of God. And unity results from that. It's when we leave the Word of God that we no longer have a single source of truth for our faith. Father in heaven, do not let these eleven men be seduced or tempted by the world and all the world's ideas of doctrine. Sanctify them and make them holy and pure. By thy word, thy word is truth. There is one standard of true religion. There is one standard of truth, and it's God's Word and it is by that word this church, our families, and our souls had better be sanctified or made holy for God's use. By one standard, God's word. And Jesus was praying that for his apostles. Verse 18, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Again, he's using the past tense for an action he's about to do. He sent them into the world when he ascended up into heaven. And he said, wait here in Jerusalem, I'll give you power from on high, then you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, under the uttermost parts of the earth. And the Apostle Paul covered quite a few of those parts of the earth. As the Father had commissioned the Lord Jesus Christ and given him a divine charge, so Jesus Christ commissioned eleven apostles and gave them a divine charge. They didn't take the job themselves, Jesus gave it to them, and on that basis, He could ask the Father to bless them, because it was a divine mission. They were on, not a human mission. If you're on a human mission, and the Lord's not in the matter, you will accomplish nothing. If you're on a divine mission, and the Lord blesses you, you can turn the world upside down. And it may only be your little part of the world, but with God's blessing, On a divine mission. And every one of you have divine missions. Every father has a divine mission. Every wife has a divine mission. We all have charges that God has given us. And if we're faithful to them, Jesus Christ prays for us to have the strength that we're able to do them. Verse 19, and for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. His final words about the apostles at this point. Father, I sanctify myself. I am setting myself apart to do your work. I am now ready to go to the cross. I will be an example to them of submitting themselves to the will of God, no matter what the cost. I'm sanctifying myself. I have set you as my only goal. My only purpose is to fulfill your your plan, your charge for my life. I sanctify myself. and Are we able to find places in Scripture where we are to endure tribulation and suffering as Jesus Christ endured it for us? He sanctified himself here to go to the cross of Calvary dedicated to the purpose and charge of God that his apostles also might be sanctified through the truth. That having the truth of God and knowing that they were to go and preach this gospel to men who didn't want to hear it, who would persecute them and stone them, scourge them and kill them. They could do it by following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ by his sanctified life. These are the words of Jesus our Savior in verses 6 through 19 as he prayed for his apostles. And when you read the book of Acts, was his prayer fulfilled? Were they united in Acts 15, was there a contradiction between the apostles? No. Was there a contradiction between the apostles and some of the Pharisees that had been converted? Oh, yes. Did the apostles stick together? Were there false brethren in Galatians chapter 2 that the pillars in, Jer- in Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John, stood against? Were the three united? Yes. Were they preserved from evil? Was Paul left outside a city after the members of that city had stoned him and thought him dead? Did he get up from that heap and celebrate with the brethren that stood around him and then go back into the city? The Lord preserved them, kept them, and they gave us doctrine. They gave us pure and holy doctrine because he preserved them. They were one. They kept the one faith, the one Father, the one Spirit, the one body, and they've written it down for us. And may God bless us, charge us, convict us this day, that to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and to be like his apostles, we must stand united on the word of God and not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. There is one hope. There's one gospel, which is not another. There's one Lord Jesus Christ, and there's one God, the Father of us all. May the Lord bless each of us to humble ourselves before Holy Scripture and to sanctify ourselves by it and thus sanctify, purge and purify this church. In Jesus name. Amen.